Bum, 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 now you're gonna just part three. Here we go, y'all. Go back and edit in the actual good theme. And uh, yeah, welcome to part three of our Twin Peaks saga. Uh, we are Watch If You Dare podcast, horror movie podcast with myself, the coward Derek, and my co-host, the movie monster boy Aaron. In which we pick apart these movies and kind of see what makes them scary, what phobias they prey upon, and if you can handle them. If you're a coward like me, and joining us again for third time in the row is Meryl. Thank you once again for taking this long journey through Twin Peaks with us. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my favorite journey. Yes. Like a turkey running through the corn. Gobble, 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 <laughs> gobble. I am the muffin. Um, but uh, No, I am. <laughs> I am the muffin. <laughs> and for those of you uh, who can't see our screen, obviously, because this is an audio format, Aaron has placed himself in the Black Lodge on Skype. And I think you had to completely update Skype, but hey, it looks good at least. Yeah, now you're not seeing just my giant wall of movies behind me. So, yay. Well, we're going to kind of um, stick to the same format. Um, it's been a few days since we last recorded, so we've got a couple more recommendations for your quarantine media consumption diet. So let's go ahead and kind of throw those at you. And once again, let's start with our guest, Meryl. Have you had anything recent? You know, you're oh, you're already shaking your head. <laughs> nope. <laughs> That's fine. I've yeah. exhausted my <laughs> my picks. Yeah. Like I said last time. Luigi's Mansion, right? I can give you an update on Luigi's. So I am about to start the last level of Luigi's Mansion. Oh, shit. Okay. Before I go. started it, I went back through every single level and got all of the gems and all of the ghosts in all of the levels. Good job. It's been an amazing time. I would really recommend it for anyone who's looking to escape the true horror of living through coronavirus in New York right now where we're just quarantined indefinitely. Yeah, it, it kind of is like being in the Black Lodge, I guess. Just living yeah. here in limbo. I mean, I kind of feel you like, and I heard another podcast host mention this as well, that uh, initially there's that weird bug in the back of your head that's like, you know what I should be doing? I should be watching like Contagion and Omega Man and like all this dark apocalyptic shit, but then you're like, nah, I can't handle that. So like, I'm kind of in that same boat where like, I don't know how much horror related stuff I can really handle right now, so I'm trying to like temper myself a little bit yeah it's funny y'all mention that because evan who's been on our show twice in the past he uh wanted to thank us specifically for purposely not doing movies that were like quarantine and contagion and specifically sort of the same thing yeah i've been very conscious of that like over the last couple of weeks yeah because like we did a dark song which is isolation but it has nothing to do with like a disease or anything like that it's just more of the theme of being isolated and in our defense we picked that episode before all this happened weeks and weeks yeah. and weeks ago and we recorded weeks before all this happened so yeah. yeah and uh but he was saying that like a lot of podcasts are doing like quote-unquote quarantine special episodes and he's kind of getting sick of it yeah and, no. yeah we we kind of wanted to go that route where it just seems a little hokey right now to be like let's do contagion feels a little much yeah although yeah. i i don't know if i told you all this but when i watched contagion after all this started i did feel better about the way we were handling everything because i think they got to like a million deaths in contagion before they were like you know maybe we should maybe we should go into lockdown 
<laughs> I was yeah. like, I guess we did it okay. <laughs> um, I do have a movie I want to watch. Maybe this is a pre-pick, and y'all can tell okay. me if I should. I've been hearing about Coherence. Coherence, the one that's based on the true story of the girl who like worked at like a fast food place, and she gets a weird, mysterious call from somebody who's like, you need to hold your employee hostage because she's done something bad, and we're the authorities, and we're coming to get her. I don't think that's it, but it could be. Nope, this is eight friends at a dinner party experience troubling chain of events due to the malevolent influence of a passing comet. And it's a science fiction thriller. Oh, okay. No, no, I'm getting mixed up. Compliance is the one that I'm thinking of, yeah. Compliance. I was like, that sounds not like what I read. Both of these sound insane, though. Yeah, although that does sound fun. But yeah, this is supposed to be really good. And I like movies with twisty endings. And I've heard that this might have a twisty ending. So that's the one that I might try to watch next. And I wish I had done it before now, so I could have chosen it. But it's my pre-pick. There you go. That'll work. I'll check that one out, too. And um, maybe we can trade some thoughts afterward, because I haven't actually seen that one now that I think about it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, Derek, do you have any recommendations? Yeah. So I started up last podcast on the left's book, last book on the left. Um, Aaron, I think you got it in the mail as well recently. I got through three of the chapters, and I like the way they formatted the book, because it's mostly Marcus who wrote the book, and then Ben and Henry kind of wrote excerpts throughout it just saying jokes almost exactly like they have the podcast set up whenever they do uh, more true crime and serial killer episodes but they go in a bit more in depth especially with people that they've already covered because they the thing I do like about this book is they go back and like tackle Ted Bundy and other people that they did early on in their podcast before they really found their footing and where they are now so they basically in the book are able to tackle it in a much more detailed manner and I actually even learned a couple things that I didn't know about previously going through these chapters by I read the first three chapters. The first one was all about Ted Bundy. The second That's a hell of a way to start the book off. Oh, dude, no, no. The, the first three chapters are Ted Bundy, Richard Chase, and Ed Gein. And then the oh, fourth God. chapter is John Wayne Gacy, and I just started the fourth chapter like a couple days ago. Um, haven't had a chance to read it in the past couple days, but I'm enjoying it so far. It's definitely written almost like a podcast episode. Like a, It sounds like Marcus takes a lot from the way he outlines and just does it in the book, but I don't have any issues with that. It's well written, uh, well researched. The little excerpts that Ben and Henry contribute are pretty funny. And the artwork is great. The art is good. Yeah. yeah I, I did flip through it. The artwork's all really solid. So I apologize. I can't give credit to the artists that contributed. It has like a slightly R. Crumb kind of look yeah, to it yeah. without all the big bone women. But it, it definitely reminds me of that style of artwork where all the characters are just really heinously ghoulish. Yeah. They've all got like extra wrinkles and pimples and you know, just everybody is made to look look really hideous. Yeah, it's like very psychotic, cartoony type art. Yeah. But yeah, and like we've we've talked about last podcast multiple times on the show in the past, so if you are a fan of their show, they did put out a book. They actually ask that you support local bookstores online who are carrying the book and shipping it out, but if for whatever reason you can't find it at those local bookstores websites or it's sold out or whatever, I think Barnes & Nobles has it on their website and um, yeah, I highly suggest picking it up. Our work's great. Story Stories are ridiculous and uh, it's funny, but also horrifying because, man, that Richard Chase chapter. That 
boy. Man, did Richard Chase do some heinous crap. I think he only killed like four or five people. I say only, but man, did he make those kills count because they are extremely disturbing. Well, I'll just leave it at I'm that. I'm running out of blood. <laughs> yeah. They're stealing my blood. I need more blood. Aaron, actually, I wanted to ask you on that note, has there been a movie made about Richard Chase? Not that I can think of distinctly, not with his very specific predilections. You know, some of the like basics of that story carry over into lots of other made up serial killers and movies and things like that. But the exact mania that he had and the weird like, I believe someone is coming and stealing my organs in the middle of the night and I'm running out of blood. I need to drink blood because I'm running out. That whole thing. No, like I, I can't think of any movie that I've seen. Like it would make for a nuts movie, but it would make for one of the most fucked up movies ever, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's like scratching the surface because we're talking like baby murder and all kinds of other fucked up stuff. Yeah, Richard Chase was out of his fucking mind. I'm just kind of surprised that nothing really has been tackled like as a dramatization of real life events because I know, I mean, I figured Mindhunter was really successful for at least the two seasons it ran. I still don't understand why that show is put on hold for right now. I mean, a lot of it's just, it's an expensive show. David Fincher is busy. Yeah. It's period. And it's a period show that requires a lot of public set dressing and cars and everything else. Like, it's just an expensive show. Yeah. I will say like this is kind of an industry thing especially with everything that's going on right now people can maybe relate but good on Fincher and the production team for like letting all the stars kind of out of their contracts so they can pursue other work while they're in the middle of this hiatus for that show yeah at least they can go on and do other stuff because all three of those core actors are solid you know at least they'll be able to like work you know while this show is just dot 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 well and I think so. the, I think the main guy who plays the main agent I forget their names already but he I mean he does theater on top of everything else he does in film and, and TV. I believe he was the original King George in Hamilton. Yeah. He's in Matrix 4. Yeah, so I saw that. In the middle of that, yeah. Yeah, the dude is a triple threat too, because if you go on his Wikipedia page, the stuff he's been on theater alone would make him like a highly successful Broadway actor, but then you look at his TV credits and his movie credits and it's just, yeah. this dude's insanely uh, talented, but yeah, so I, I just think that it would be interesting to see like a Mindhunter-esque either movie or miniseries or something off of some of these killers. But yeah, you're right. It would probably go down as like the most fucked up movie ever. Yeah, the problem is this, and I think this is why Mindhunter is so effective. As a serial killer focused show, you don't see anything in Mindhunter. You hear a lot of heinous shit. You hear them telling their stories and you hear a lot about what they've done. You see pictures. You see but any of them. Yeah, you, you don't see the actual kills. To do like an actual movie following somebody like Richard Chase, you couldn't get away with it. The amount of violence and just insane depravity on like a two hour long scale, you're not going to get anybody to sit through that. A show like Mindhunter, again, where you're hearing a lot of super fucked up stuff, you're just hearing it. So you can process that better, like you're listening to a podcast or reading a book or anything else. Like it's different when you're seeing it versus just absorbing the details otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so beyond that, well, you've been toiling away for Tom Nook on your island uh, for God knows how many hours. 
hours. It's relaxing. That's all I'll say. I have been taking my quarantine time and putting it towards Persona 5 Royal or Royale, whatever, however way it's supposed to be pronounced. And I know I mentioned it last week briefly, but this time around, I'm going to gush about it. So it is a re-release of Persona 5 with a ton of expanded content, brand new story, I think 20 to 30 plus hours extra of new story, three new characters uh, that were in, weren't were in the core original game, still follows the core game, at least for right now, pretty closely, but there has already been quite a bit that isn't brand new that I've come across. It is a game that I highly recommend, even if you've already played Persona 5 and beaten it or just played a chunk of it, you should probably play Persona 5. Royale um, if you're not busy with Animal Crossing or Final Fantasy 7 or whatever. Meryl, has your husband Nathan played the game? Because it definitely seems like something that would be up his alley. No, he hasn't. I've heard a lot about it though and it does seem interesting. He is really busy with his island in Animal God Crossing that he's <laughs> named Penn Island. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, he toured our friend Claudia around so I watched them sit down together and pretend to play a board game. So Animal Crossing seems riveting. I visited Claudia's island today. Yeah. Y'all are the worst. Y'all are the goddamn worst. <laughs> but uh, do y'all own a PS4? Because if you do, I I would suggest getting him Persona 5 Royal. And honestly, it's probably a lot more riveting to watch for you than Animal Crossing because it has actual characters. I mean, I'll do anything. And plot. <laughs> and, and demons that are like literal demons sitting on toilets. That sounds, and that sounds awesome. And giant spiky yep. carriages driven by like penis monsters. It's ridiculous. I'll throw the penis monsters at Nathan and see if I think he'll probably be into it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably take that one up. Which is why I brought it up on our show, because while again, I know I said this last week, it is not specifically a horror video game, but it has quite a lot of horror elements in it. You're literally summoning demons from your subconscious to like fight other people's mental illness monsters. It's, yeah. it's horror enough. Yeah, it's horror enough. And like, again, it deals with psychology of the shadow self and all that nonsense. But something I forgot about that is kind of horrific is you go into people quote-unquote palaces, which is like their distorted hearts, and you basically steal their hearts to, to change them into better people, basically, and make them confess their crimes in reality. It's kind of halfway through the game or like a chunk of the way in the game. There's a palace that is modeled after a pyramid, because each of these palaces is modeled after places that like you would think thieves would steal treasure from, like a castle, a palace, a cruise ship, a casino, etc. And in the pyramid level, the boss of that level actually isn't the shadow who runs the place, like it is in most of the other palaces. It's actually a cognition of her dead mother taking the form of a giant sphinx, I think. And she's basically like shouting at you the entire time, like, you should have never been born. I'm going to kill your friends. You deserve to die here in this tomb. And like, you have to fight that. And like, that's pretty fucking horrific and traumatizing. But again, it is like one of the best RPGs of all time. I'm just going to fucking say it. It's probably in my top 10 games of all time. It's amazing. Yeah, I know Heather played it through all the way twice. She literally played it through two whole times to get all different endings and all that other stuff. And I didn't even do that. I played all the way through the core game, the first game when it came out once, and that was already like over 100 hours of gameplay. But I am going to play through, I am playing through Persona 5 Royal. I'm already like 40 hours into this game. So I'm in for the long haul. I can't wait to see the new story content because they added a whole new third semester. So I want to see where the story goes beyond the last boss because the last boss in the core game, I'm not going to give away spoilers, but I mean, it's pretty hard to top like what you do and who you fight. So I am very curious to see where this game goes. But yes, it is Mind Demons 
from the collective unconsciousness fighting shadows and you're basically trying to destroy people's mental illness and wicked ways in their hearts so it's pretty horrific ties back into a uh, david lynch fix your heart i mean so. uh, in a lot of ways these palaces and like going into the metaverse and like going into uh steal these people's distorted hearts a lot of it is just more straightforward black lodge that's all these palaces are they're just more black lodge if the black lodge had a degree of um travel <laughs> this sounds yeah. like one of your theories that's going to come in later on so yeah i know that there's a place called the velvet room where you interact with some characters throughout the game and it's definitely modeled after the black lodge um it's kind of like the black lodge and blue velvet just smushed together yeah i'm i'm very much wondering if when the first persona game was uh released because the first persona game came out in japan i'm doing a quick lookup of it actually in september 1996 so yeah i wonder if the Velvet Room was kind of inspired by Twin Peaks at that point because the Velvet Room does have a very Black Lodge-esque feel to it and it's in every Persona game. Oh, okay. I didn't know that that was like a recurring place. Speaking of Japan, I read this that Fire Walk With Me in Japan was the second biggest box office opening after Terminator 2. Like as yeah. big of a flop as it was here, it was huge in Japan. They loved it. Yeah. Got good taste. So maybe the Velvet Room was in fact modeled after Black Lodge. Yeah, I Aaron, I, I don't know if you knew that the Velt Room has been in every single Persona game. Okay. It's the place where the hero always goes to make their Personas. That makes sense then, because I mean, and I kind of joked about it on the last recording, but Japan fucking loves David Lynch. The Japanese and the French get him on some kind of deeper level than the rest of the world, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's all I really got to recommend. I just wanted to bring up a last podcast book, and then once again, Persona 5 Royal. Seriously, if you've already played Persona 5, this is still worth playing and going through. I'm speaking specifically specifically to my friend Sean Mars when I say this. Um, A plug for this website called bookshop.org during quarantine if you go to that you can actually order from your local bookshops and still will give them money hey also i did pull up on twin peaks wikipedia itself actually that um there's a whole page of things that twin peaks has influenced for persona art director kazuma kanoko stated that the velvet room from the series at least in the first game is inspired by the black lodge so there you go Cool, cool. Well, I've got a couple of recommendations real fast. One that I will kind of revisit now that I've finished it is the Shudder original series, Cursed Films. Um, last episode, I told you I just watched the first episode covering The Exorcist, and I was, you know, mostly okay with it. Notice us, Shudder. Notice us. Yeah really. But Cursed Films finishes up and kind of gets to a much stronger place than that first episode left me in. I thought that the whole tangent of here's a real life exorcist talking to some clients was maybe kind of a weird and disjointed thing from like let's talk about the movie. But the entire series does a good job of taking the piss out of the idea that these movies were cursed in kind of a larger sense and just attributing it to like, no, let's talk about all the things that like actually fucked up. You know, like, they talk about the whole entire tragedy of Brandon Lee's death and the crow and how all of that was just top to bottom technical oops and negligence that led to him dying and the entire tragedy that was on the Twilight Zone movie and all the bad decisions that were made along the way there that led to those people dying. Just a lot of the, like, bad luck coincidence things. All the people that were involved in these movies really just, like, are sitting down and saying, like, no, these people or us, we fucked up. You know, there's no curse. And kind of getting to the bottom of a lot of that in a very grounded way, I thought, was an interesting approach rather than trying to further 
fan the flames of these movies had, you know, ooky spooky stuff going on. Sounds like a bunch of no fun Nancys over there. <laughs> to further that point, they kind of make a point of saying like, okay, cool. You know what horror movies have been really popular in the last couple of years? Get out. Hereditary. Guess what? None of them have curses. Like those movies are just as big and famous and like popular, but there's no myth of a curse. All these like cursed myths disappear past 1987 miraculously <laughs> so it's just one of those weird like media hype things you know so it, it was an interesting series really well put together so that's definitely worth everybody's time there is definitely a movie covered that we will be doing in the near future so just hint hint on that let's see who can figure that one out other two things um, I picked up the Shout Factory Scream Factory release of April Fool's Day and House on Haunted Hill once again Factory, Scream Factory, we'll plug, you know, whatever you want, just, you know, sponsor <laughs> us. Anyway, House on Haunted Hill is the 99 version, which, boy oh boy, is that movie, like, dated now? It's wild to, like, look at that movie, and it's 20 fucking years old. Wait, is that the one with Catherine uh, Zeta-Jones in it? <laughs> no, Heather asked me the same question. That's The Haunting. The Haunting, yeah, I get those two mixed yeah, up every that time. movie's hot garbage in my opinion yeah the haunting was the like let's go to the haunted house stay overnight we're scientists right yeah house on haunted hill was a remake of the vincent price oh yes come to my haunted mansion and whoever can stay the night gets a million dollars that's right right, because i've seen the original yeah this update has jeffrey rush as the millionaire he like specifically designs like amusement park rides roller coasters and haunted house kind of rooms like that's his shtick which is kind of interesting and Famke Jansen and Tay Diggs and a bunch of other people like that so it's it's fun K&B does all the special effects so if anything it's a fun movie to watch for all the practical effects and some of the makeup gags and just the production design because it's set in this huge massive really over stylized former insane asylum turned mansion Jeffrey Combs is fun as kind of this like spectral crazy doctor who had murdered people a bunch of years ago so it's got some really bad 1999 cgi and it definitely has some like chris Catan from snl acting that doesn't age well but it's fun enough chris Catan is a name i've not heard in a long time yeah really and he's like the rational one of the group you would not expect that necessarily so i also mentioned april fool's day that is a movie that i've heard a lot about never seen it so i bought that one kind of sight unseen and it was fun it's in interesting how it plays out although you will maybe hate all the characters in it because this is the like waspiest 1980s oh yeah my dad owns a dealership bro like group of people (laughs) do they at least all get fucked up yes okay i mean everybody you know gets taken out little by little but it was still pretty fun i i like how the characters kind of all related to each other even though you do kind of hate all of them they all are a little self-aware of like their own place in kind of the social order and everything else so that one's fun i won't say much more than that because with a movie called april fool's day you can probably guess that there's like some twists so you know that's kind of all i'll say about the movie but the transfer looks great solid blu-ray worth picking up if you're interested in it last thing i'll mention i picked up a four-issue comic series. Four-issue for, like, this first story arc. It's from Dark Horse Comics, and it is called Count Crowley, Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. I've read this one. Yep, I actually recently read this one, too. Yeah, 
It was written by the actor David Desmalkian. He was in The Dark Knight. He was in Blade Runner just recently, and he's about to be in Dune. He's like one of those character actor guys that you would absolutely know because he's been in a lot of stuff in the last couple of years. He wrote this comic. I loved it. I thought it was great. The artwork's fun. Yep. But it's about a woman in like her mid-30s who is massively alcoholic, washed up. Her family owns a TV station, and she was kind of on track to be a journalist before she just completely scrubbed out, became a huge alcoholic. And it's her brother who's now running the station after their parents have passed, and he's trying to do his best to kind of help her get on her feet, and she's trying and struggling. But essentially, he convinces her to take over the, like, time slot of the, like, old horror movie host guy who, like, had his vampire stick and would come on and, like, do the little interstitials talking about the movie. So she dresses up and goes and does it, but she's kind of sloshed during it and making fun of the movie and just talking shit the entire time. But people love her. The twist comes in in that she is attacked by a werewolf in the parking lot on the way home one night, and you kind of find out that the former host of this show who has kind of disappeared was legit an actual monster hunter, and he was helping out this werewolf in very specific ways. So it gets a lot deeper than that. Yeah. But it's a very, very fun series. It takes a really serious look at alcoholism and just how this character is dealing with that. There's a lot of like heart and nostalgia behind the series too, but it's it's solid. Yeah, you find out something like fucked up happened for her to stop pursuing journalism and becoming an alcoholic and everything. Yeah, and the alcoholism is the very, like, on-the-surface thing that it's dealing with, but what you just mentioned specifically is, like, a much deeper thing that's kind of, like, going on right now very, like, publicly that's being discussed. And that's kind of where I'll leave it, just so people that are interested can kind of see where that goes for themselves. But I think it's a very, very solid series. I hope that it goes beyond just the these four initial issues because they definitely set up the world to be much bigger by the end of that four issue arc but with comics being kind of on hiatus right now you know we'll see what happens from there i hope he does return to it because like you said it's it's a tight four issues it's it's a fun story surprisingly a lot more heart to it than i thought it there was going to be like you had mentioned and he does end it on a way that's open-ended and even says Count Crawley will return at some point or another, basically. Um, Something else that I didn't know is he's going to be in, I guess it's a revamp, reboot, sequels, I don't know, this new James Gunn Suicide Squad movie. He's going to be playing the Polka Dot Man. Yep. (laughs) Which is like one one of those shitties like 50s Batman cartoon villains that only had one appearance. He's a pretty grounded, cool guy, it seems, and he's got a really interesting story about getting into the industry because he was really, really in a bad place in his life and was like about to just call everything quits. And then he got cast in Dark Knight. He's gone on to do a lot of stuff since then. Yeah. Like I said, he was just in the Blade Runner sequel. Um, He's about to be in Dune. So yeah, he seems to be a very cool guy with all the stuff that he's getting into. Um, You mentioned Dune and I yeah. just saw the old Dune for the first time. The like David Lynch week. one? The David Lynch one. Yeah. Oh my God. I love God. it. It was beautiful. It oh, was it's such a work fantastic. of art. <laughs> 
I couldn't believe it. I I was floored, really. Nathan's been telling me I needed to watch it for a long time. And it's truly like the first 30 minutes of the movie. I was like, how is this not like this had to have won awards? Then I understood like after the first 30 minutes why it didn't. But just like the first like <laughs> exposition and setting and like Kyle MacLachlan and everything that was happening. Oh my God, Pete is in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's tons just, of like the David Lynch, just David Lynch yeah. and his friends. Tons uh, of them. It was beautiful. The emperor is Jose Ferrer. Do you know who he is the father of from Twin Peaks? No. Miguel Ferrer. Albert. Oh my God. You can really? see it now. Yeah. Yeah. You can yes. totally like visualize it in your head now. Oh yep. Which, my God. RIP, how beautiful. Uh, Miguel Ferrer. Yeah. yeah. So I'm assuming if you enjoyed the first 30 minutes, you did not watch the like extended cut with a 20 minute long PowerPoint presentation to open it and explain. <laughs> And everything that's going Wait, on. Well, I, didn't know I really wish I had. <laughs> Where is this? <laughs> so, I mean, we're getting off onto a good tangent, but this is about David Lynch as much as it is about Twin Peaks, really. So, it's a valid discussion. So, you know, he had done Eraserhead, and that was like a huge midnight kind of movie, big success in the art film world. And then he did Elephant Man, which was like a serious drama, nominated for tons of awards. And then he went on to do Dune after he was allegedly <laughs> offered Return of the Jedi, which that's like a whole nother non-story. But we talked about in the previous episodes, he he shoots way more than he ends up using because he's one of those directors that starts with a lot and then whittles down what he wants, which is why we have 90 extra minutes of the missing pieces, which didn't make it into the movie we're discussing. But allegedly, there are like six, eight hour long cuts of Dune somewhere out there floating in the ether, whatever. When the movie came out, because Dune is one of these like giant 800 page fucking books that's like dense as hell, they literally had to make a like trifle fold brochure that they sat on everybody's seat at the premiere of Dune to explain what the fuck they're looking at and explain like these political systems and the worlds and all these different groups and organizations and all this bullshit because the movie does just dump you in with little to no explanation and you know you can imagine how well that went over with the audience that was there to watch Oh you can movie, ask Nathan right? how well that went over with me asking every five minutes <laughs> wait a minute yeah. who are the Harkonnens why are they all having the same name yeah, yeah this was, what is this was all of the first of the movie yeah. Aaron showed me the movie and I tried not to ask questions during it but I know I did a lot and then the end like by the end of it we spent like two or three hours just talking about it yeah afterwards about the history why David Lynch was chosen <laughs> yeah and like what the fuck was actually happening in certain parts of the movie yeah but yeah later for like home video release they put out this extended cut which oh, man. is like an Alan Smithy movie, you know, because David Lynch didn't want his name anywhere fucking near it. But it literally starts with a 20 minute long, we're just going to show you like painted concept art and have a voiceover. Oh my God. That explains so the entire world and back history of this fucking movie that you're getting Does into. Does it explain why they have two names for the main planet? Why in this fictional world did we need to name it two things? <laughs> well, there's a lot that the movie doesn't really explain. Yeah. Like that seems yep. really unnecessary. All, all you need to know 
knows who can, whoever controls the spice controls the world or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's, about yeah. It. it's a uh, it's a very interesting book about the dangers of blindly following charismatic leaders. Sound uh, sound familiar? Anyway, anyway, I know I know we are off on a tangent, but uh, got to say this Dune remake though looks fucking stacked. Bro, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. Denny Villeneuve is like one of those people right now that I will watch anything he makes. I have liked everything that he's done. This cast looks amazing. All the technical people on board this are amazing. Yeah, my boy Timmy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's the star in it actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, can't wait. I'm there. So <laughs> offline, I'll edit this out. But do you, Meryl, have any memories of being at Sally's wedding, or is it just like oh, blasted fuck. out of your mind yes, at this point? Yes, I do. Oh okay. my god, I do have some memories of Sally's wedding. Derek and I were so fucking drunk. <laughs> And I remember distinctly at one point, we were drinking... Out of the urn. We were drinking whiskey out Out of of an urn. Out of the urn? Oh my god, I remember that. Oh, holy shit. We were drinking with... Brother at the time. Right, yes. But he just started chugging. And I just remember like both Derek and I just screaming like, Father, the sleeper has awakened! (laughs) My god! What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Okay, cool. So for those of you listening right now, we kind of went off on a tangent that's going to get edited out, but we had a great time talking about it. So anywho, (laughs) so yeah, Dune. Dune was like a huge financial and critical flop for Lynch. You know, and in some ways it might have set his career back, but it's truly a tale of he didn't let that misstep really fuck with him too much because at the end of the day, he made Blue Velvet. And from there, he went on like a tear for a whole decade. So, you know, it definitely, like, emboldened him to take some weird steps. So that's, you know, obviously we wouldn't have Twin Peaks if not for the failure of Dune. But in retrospect, that movie's pretty great. It's yeah, pretty great. It's a fucking mess, but it's overall a good movie in my opinion. Okay, if you want to see fucking Dale Cooper and Big mm-hmm. Ed oh, fucking broed up wearing leather and riding a fucking sandworm while Toto is blasting in the background... Hell yeah. Like, that's the movie. Does this sound like a magical music video already? Because it is. This is the magical sci fi music video you've been waiting for. Straight out of the Twin Peaks universe. Sting is also the villain, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, Sting is the villain in uh, fucking Dune. So, yeah, lots of interesting people. Is in his underwear at one Uh, point? Yeah. 
Totally. Yep, there you go. Yeah, lots of uh, David Lynch regulars in Dune, so it's at least fun to watch like from that odd standpoint. So, real quick, we've done some fun icebreakers, you know, with uh, the Twin Peaks Terror Deck, and that's been a fun time. But since we did just kind of bring up the first time that we saw certain things, let's talk about the first time that we saw Firewalk with Me. You know, I'm assuming most of us probably saw it after we had watched the TV show. So, I guess let's start with you, Meryl. What's your uh, story? about the first time you saw this and how did it kind of change your perspective on the series? So the first time I saw this was in 2017, actually, when The Return was coming out. And I knew it was coming out and I wanted to finally see this movie. And Nathan and I had just moved to New York and we found out that they were doing a special showing of it at this movie theater called The Village East Cinema. And this place is really beautiful. It's very old. Um, It's got gorgeous old ceiling and like red curtains. It's really pretty. Went with two of my friends from the boot camp that I was in at the time. Didn't know that it was a horror movie. (laughs) I really didn't know very much about it at all. Just knew that it was like the prequel to this. So we were sitting there. We watched most of the movie up until the point where they're in the cabin at the very end. The suspense is building and it's getting really intense. The music is really loud. And as they are being forced through the door of the cabin and, and into the next scene, the whole screen just starts getting like that gray static fuzz and okay. just cuts so out. So y'all were watching like a digital DCP, not an actual like 35 projection where the film would have like brought and melted, right? It was the latter. It was actually on film. Ooh. And that what burned. we didn't know was that the film reel just went away came off (laughs) I think most people in the theater hadn't seen it so all of us sat in darkness for a really (laughs) long time watching this static just assuming that this was a lynch move right because we were just like maybe it is just static for the next few minutes like maybe that's what's (laughs) happening and it took like the lights turning on before people started even chattering because no one knew whether this was part of the movie or whether this was a mess up and so I actually didn't see the ending of it for a really long time until I watched it with my dad later on, which was another fun time. But yeah, that was really funny because we actually didn't know how it ended for a while (laughs) after we saw it that first time. Cool, cool. Derek, what about you? So I actually purposely tried to avoid Firewalk with me for probably at least six months or so after I finished the actual series because just kind of talking with you and, you know, granted, this was back in like 2012, 2013, where them having a third season with the return was still just all hearsay rumor, not even a possibility. It was just like all fan rumors at this point. So you had been pretty open to me about it. At the time, you were a little more cold about if I should watch Firewalk with me or not. Um, You said it's still worth a watch, but just be ready to be disappointed is kind of what you were giving me at that time just because of I liked the theme of the show so much and then the fact that this would be the last brand new Twin Peaks media I would ever consume would be Fire Walk With Me and it would be this much darker tone and everything else and not just you but a couple other people because I'd been in social situations where like Twin Peaks came up and we started talking about it and a lot of people were either hot or cold on this movie so I was kind of scared that like it would ruin the series for me but then for a dumber reason why I waited so long is you told me that the jump scare yeah 
You had mentioned this on the first episode that the jump scare in the Black Lodge I told you happened in this movie. The, in the movie. And so yeah. uh, even though I'd seen the series and saw that jump scare at the last episode of the series, I figured that, oh, it's probably one of those Lynch things where they replay certain scenes, including in this movie. So they'll probably like replay that jump scare. So I was like, I don't feel like watching that jump scare again. And so I just <laughs> waited and sat on it for about six months or so. And then randomly one night, uh, I was still working night shift on the PICU, but I was off and so I would stay up all night to watch movies but on one of my off nights we actually met up downtown in New Orleans um, and went to a show I forget what show it was but we went to One Eye Jacks which in my opinion is the best music venue in New Orleans and we would go there quite often and the interior to One Eye Jacks looks like the fucking Black Lodge like it's lots of red curtains and tile floor and everything yeah yeah, it's like a combination of the Black Lodge mixed with the One Eye Jacks in Twin Peaks take both of them with all the black and the white and the red and the curtains and just throw them together and make it into a music venue. And we were there and we saw whoever we were saw and while we were there we were making the usual jokes like oh this is the Black Lodge haha. And in the back of my mind I was just like you know what there's still that movie because I was trying to decide what to do later on. It was like one in the morning and I you know I stayed up to like four or five in the morning when I was working night shift. So I was like I still got some hours to kill. I don't really feel like playing anything or reading anything. You know what fuck it I'll watch Firewalk with me. So I watched it and surprisingly I was kind of annoyed with myself for not just sitting down and watching it earlier because I weirdly did enjoy it. It was very shocking how different the tone was compared to the original series. So my first time of seeing it really wasn't anything special. Nothing crazy happened. I just watched it on my computer at like three or four in the morning while Savannah was asleep and I was like upstairs in our apartment at that time. But I guess to your point, and this is kind of the caveat that we threw out in the very first episode, which is just if you're a fan of Twin Peaks, we feel like this is essential viewing, but be prepared for a huge time tonal shift absolutely and no answers and i feel like it not even just between us like people i know personally that also like twin peaks just the fandom in general i feel like there's been a shift and a reassessment of fire walk with me to now valid people universally accept it as like a great movie and a great part of the twin peaks lore and it is essential now with the return like half the shit in the return comes just from fire walk with me i feel like it pulls more from this movie than it does the first two seasons of the actual fucking show yeah my story's pretty straightforward i mean i weirdly enough like twin peaks has been something that's been in my life my entire life like even if it's vicariously um Um, I definitely remember my mom watching this show when it was airing. I was very, very young, but I definitely remember like seeing like weird snatches of it on TV and it kind of burned in my head a little bit. But it wasn't until high school that I rewatched the entire series for the first time. I mean, I'd always heard my mom talk about it and I'd heard other people talk about it. But when I was in high school is when that first DVD set dropped, I believe. And that was also kind of around the time that Bravo started re-airing the entire series like non-fucking-stop. Bravo was playing it. So I watched the series for the first time in high school and kind of the same thing. Like I had heard the movie wasn't good and I put off the movie and I put off the movie and finally watched it maybe first year of college somewhere in there. It had to have been first year of college because I was burning through so fucking much stuff during my freshman year of undergrad. And I really, really dug the movie specifically because it goes a little bit further than what the TV show does in terms of just pushing the limits of how 
surreal and Lynchian it can get. So, you know, that's, like I said, I don't really have an interesting story with mine beyond just, you know, kind of like a lot of people, I just put off watching it because I heard it wasn't good. And boy, boy, was I just fucking wrong about that. So I definitely enjoy it. I've since watched it a few more times. This will sound really fucking weird, but it's good going to sleep just to kind of relax you and calm you down because there's so many long moments that are kind of drawn out in there to like build mood and tension. But it's kind of a relaxing movie for me, if that makes any fucking sense. No. Nope. Yeah, I can't really (laughs) tell either. I'm with Meryl on this one. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I like a lot of <laughs> surreal cinema. So, like, for me, it's kind of a comforting thing just to, like, throw on and have going in the background. So, yeah. We kind of thought that that would be a good discussion to have, being that this is going to be kind of our last, you know, let's tie everything together. So, you know, this series is definitely important to all three of us. So uh, I figured that would be kind of a good way to tie everything up. get back to it because last where we left we saw fucking Leland flip his shit out again before we get into this just go back listen to part one and part two of, of our episodes. Yeah if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the first two just what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah I'm not gonna do my whole like is it scary spiel yeah. because I've done it twice already and what are you doing if you're listening to only part three at this point? Yeah really. So yeah we left the last episode. Laura has pretty definitively gotten in her head that her father Leland is in fact Killer Bob. The spirit that she believes has been sexually assaulting her for years. We also have a very strange encounter with several of the people in the kind of underbelly of Twin Peaks and we kind of see Laura's dark side come out a little bit, much to the shock of her friend Donna. We also have a really intense scene with the one-armed man, Philip Gerard, who is possessed by the good spirit, the reformed spirit Mike, kind of delivering a challenge and a warning to Bob via Leland, but also kind of trying to warn Laura that her father is, in fact, the person that has been terrorizing her for years. So that is where we left off previously. So where we are now, we pick up later in the evening. So now that the veil has been kind of lifted a little bit regarding, you know, Leland's actual identity, Laura kind of senses what's coming. 
she is just I wouldn't even say it's deteriorated I think it's past deteriorated at this point and not even acceptance either it's just the Laura we get in the third act of this movie feels I don't know just the most come apart as a person very unhinged yeah yeah just than any other part of the series the movie everything yeah defeated is kind of how I feel and kind of view it because she's definitely at the point where like I said she hasn't given up and she hasn't quite accepted it she just she knows it's inevitable and she's sad by that fact but she also knows that there's nothing that she can do about it so later that night Laura starts to kind of hear some of the telltale signs that something's about to happen the infamous ceiling fan in the hallway clicks on which is kind of to mask Leland's comings and goings in and out of the house we also see Leland drug her mother Sarah Palmer played by Grace Zabriskie and it's very much a terrifying moment where you know he basically just gives her a glass of milk that we know is spiked And he forces her to drink it, like he forces her to finish it. But Sarah's kind of acceptance is terrifying. Just the fact that like she knows absolutely what is about to happen. And instead of trying to stop it, instead of trying to fight back in any way she performs, she just lets it happen. And that complicitness with, you know, Leland slash Bob's behavior is just one of the like saddest things about the entire series is just, you know, literally her own mother is not even there to like protect her. Or for the third time is it actually Judy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to talk about Judy. This is the part when Sarah is drugged. She sees the white horse in her room. Yes. Yes. I don't know if that's something we want to give any thoughts on. I personally have very few thoughts on it. (laughs) I think it's very weird, but I don't know if I have anything really well formed. Uh, I read actually a little interpretations of this while back uh, when I was going down like a, well, let's read discover some Twin Peaks stuff uh, a while back when I was bored one day. A lot of fan theories and a lot of people suggest that the horse is a representation or aspect of Judy because Judy is such like a chaotic presence that not necessarily everything is in your face evil um it's just that there's just aspects of her because they're in the return there's woodsmen that when they like recite that poem over the air to put everyone to sleep in new mexico Mm -hmm. um they reference a pale horse or through the eye of a pale horse or something like Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. and then the pale horse could also even just be literally a representation of death of like great tragedy about to happen because historically a pale horse is associated with uh the horseman uh of the apocalypse death as we saw on the tarot card last week yeah yeah still even though it's like an omen kind of like a death omen it's also still just judy taunting her in a way um and even though it's supposed to be quote-unquote comforting it's not necessarily that comforting because in the return too, when cooper quote-unquote maybe time travels or shifts to another dimension or whatever and he goes to odessa to find the waitress who looks like mm-hmm. laura when he goes to laura's house there's a white horse figurine on her mantle yeah and that's right after he leaves the diner called judy's diner so mm-hmm. i kind of just go with those interpretations like not everything has a super deeper meaning i just think it's more of just like oh it's stuff of the black lodge or the spirits or judy fucking with the environment around them and because sarah palmer is susceptible to judy and probably possessed by judy she's having this hallucination mm-hmm. yeah that's a good read like meryl said i i also don't have like many thoughts on the horse it's kind of one of those like cubbing going things So Laura mentioned earlier in the movie and in the show that Bob comes through her window to terrorize her. And once again, we see Bob 
do that. I mean, he's at her window. He opens the window. He crawls up on the bed and begins to rape her. And this is a pretty scary, intense scene, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's intense just for like what's going on in general, but the way that it's done as well is very unsettling. Yeah, it's deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) But right before we see Bob, we see Laura start to arouse herself and like look very sexy. Um, She's got her sexy black lingerie dress on and I thought that that really struck me the second time I saw it. To me, it reads as a call out. Like, I am trying to get Bob in here. And I was like, why is she doing that this time? And then, like, if you want to keep talking about what happens next, like, I think we find out why she's trying at this point to get him to come in. That's a good read because I I didn't really notice that or pay much attention to it like the second or third time I watch us. And going in hand in hand with like how horrific the scene is when Bob is coming through the window and everything, like there's that Lynch strobe light effect. Yeah. And it's during this sexual assault that we kind of see there's like a flash between Bob and then Leland. And there's right. seemingly like a transformation midway through. And Meryl was definitely like on the right track with that, that this is definitively Laura's confirmation that the person who has been terrorizing her all these years is actually for sure definitely her father. Yeah, once he gets in the bed with her and he's got his hand up her skirt, they both are grimacing at each other. It's really disturbing. And then up until this point, she's still acting sexy, still acting like, like in a f- almost flirty way and then it changes and she looks at him and she starts going who are you who are you who are you really like she's she's interrogating him and so like that was the feeling to me of oh she tried to bait him into coming here so that she could finally figure it out because like you said just in the previous scene she sees like this weird electricity or hears the fan or something and then is asking that to the ceiling and so it feels like at this point she's actually asked him in to get this confirmation and then she kind of gets it with that flash we're talking about right now and it's a little bit of you didn't really want to know in the end because mm-hmm. like when she when you do get the flash of leland that's when she like freaks out it's kind of just like a you can't handle the truth moment but that was the answer she got from this point you know we go to the next morning and they're all sitting around the breakfast table like nothing happened the fucking night before yeah that honestly that's creepy as fuck the way they do yeah. that because it's picket fence leland morning is just back to being leland yeah. and everything's kind of hunky-dory but laura is like fucking wrecked the next morning over like the absolute realization that bob has been her father this whole time um and she's also like really untrusting of her mother at this point too but kind of like we just mentioned this is like a subplot in the movie that really is kind of completely unnecessary we see her really ramp up her drug use a lot past this point a lot of cocaine yeah she starts doing more and more coke she realizes that the stash she keeps at her house is out she like keeps it hidden away in a book and she goes to bobby like to get more and we see like this whole weird scene where they go out in the middle of the fucking woods because he's been on the side of this entire movie setting up like a giant drug deal with somebody from across the Canadian border which we find out is the like sheriff's deputy from Deer Meadow from earlier in the fucking movie that all comes back around and he fucking murders this cop and it's all this melodrama and we kind of just see Laura like really laugh alive it off like she is just not giving a She's taunting. Yeah, she's taunting. And like Bobby's freaking out because he just fucking killed somebody. And she's just still, you know, fucking out of it. Like nothing matters at this point. But there is a scene where, you know, Laura and 
Bobby are like hanging out in the basement of Bobby's house and they kind of have a heart to heart. But this is where he like really realizes that she's mostly been using him for the drugs all this time. And although like she cares for him in a way, there was never going to be like a long term relationship with them. And I mean, he even has the realization of like, yeah, I kind of know at this point you've just been using me, you know, as a drug connect. So yeah, on one hand, okay, it's kind of another one of those like we need to kind of establish where they are and how they kind of end before the series but all the fucking subplot with James setting up this drug deal and killing the guy Bobby needed to go but Bobby yeah yeah sorry James is gonna be in a minute but it's literally just all there to explain like a throwaway line from the series like in maybe the pilot episode where somebody says Bobby killed somebody and that never fucking oh, yeah, comes back James, up ever like, again oh yeah when James like rats him out yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and that like never comes back up again <laughs> <laughs> that scene where they kill the cop is probably my least favorite scene in the whole movie. Not because totally. Of, not because it's bad. Not because it's. It feels like the darkest, it's unnecessary void point of the whole movie. It feels very yeah. empty. Yeah, and it's it it's is banal. very uncomfortable. Yeah, it's just very no, empty. Yeah, the lighting even is very stark. Yeah, you don't feel the weight of it. And I love Bobby. Like uh, like I've said in the, yeah, either same. the first or second part, he's possibly my favorite character in the whole thing but yeah it's like unnecessary and it never is brought up again like because i forgot this scene fucking happened until i rewatched this more recently for our episodes but it would have been interesting the return if this kind of became an issue like hey you're now a cop in twin peaks and guess what we discover this fucking body just out in the forest that's been there for years yeah and evidence pointing to you bud like that would have been an interesting point to bring back but honestly i'm also kind of glad they just never fucking go back yeah. to this yeah i'm glad we we just left that in the past but and and somewhere buried in between like this scene and scene to, and um laura just having all this trouble in school because of all the cocaine and has that scene with bobby on his couch and refuses to have sex with him and then that's when he kind of realizes that she's kind of been using him for the cocaine the biggest point to come out of these scenes to me at least is the angel that's been in Laura's painting not the painting she got from the spirits but the painting that's been on her bedroom wall for I don't know how long the angel in that painting disappears yeah to signify that like i guess another bad omen yeah did, did either of y'all have a reading on this well right before that i just wanted to call it a more favorite scene of mine which i think is honestly just like some comic relief is the getting dressed part where she's just really struggling with her tights and you can see yeah. james <laughs> calling her and then she just like has the phone upside down for a long time she's like, i'll call you in 15 minutes I'll go. yeah and like he can't hear her because <laughs> the phone is upside down and she's like I think and it's she's very... just coked out of her fucking gourd, yeah. I don't want to say it's relatable now that you've said that, but <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> there is something relatable about just like, oh my god, I got all got all these clothes on to look good, and this person wants me to meet them, and like, there's something very charming and relatable and cute about that scene before we get into the nightmare of the rest of the night. And yeah. rewatching it, I really appreciated that short but like weirdly long getting dressed and making plans part before she goes to the like painting and sees that her angel one last good scene before everything gets yeah the one last fucking good hell. scene <laughs> yeah uh, later this night like you mentioned this is the same night that she went and like hung out with Bobby she gets called by James who wants to meet her so James comes by her house on his motorcycle picks her up 
And they kind of have their heart to heart where she finally breaks things off with him as well. And James, uh, once again, acting like a block of wood. Yep. Yeah. And as an audience, I think we get the scene we want where she just slaps him in the face. (laughs) Simpering at her. (laughs) There is a part of the scene because most of the scene is just almost soap opera levels, tongue in cheek drama with the music kicking up and him like being like, I love you, Laura. And she's like, your Laura is gone. There is a part where like she looks past him and is looking into the forest and screams and for years and years and years people assumed either that was her just kind of freaking out because she was all coked out or she saw Leland stalking her because like right after that is when she pushes James away saying like if you get close to me he'll kill you too basically is what she says so a lot of people assume that oh she saw Leland stalking about in the forest or Bob and screamed but the return finally answer what the fuck happened and I don't think Lynch I don't know but that's the thing knowing Lynch like I have no idea like was this meant on purpose or was this something he wrote in for the return specifically I have a feeling that it was probably written in the return to close this loophole I do too but you know I wouldn't be that surprised if like Lynch actually wrote it this far in advance but it's actually Cooper who through time traveling again the return is fucking nutso the way it ends is in the woods watching the scene happen and Laura catches a glimpse of him and I'm thinking it's Leland or someone else she screams so interesting little aside there yeah yeah that was great and then when uh she eventually jumps off the bike James just (laughs) right off yeah yeah for someone who's apparently in love you just (laughs) yeah right off yeah the moment specifically like he's kind of giving her all the you know you're just different and you're not taking anything seriously anymore and blah 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 and she finally just like fuck you like you're trying to be tough and like really you're just a little boy and I pity you that's kind of the line that she throws at him is just like I have nothing but pity for you and after that freak out moment they stop at the big intersection kind of out in the middle of the woods on the edge of town that we see throughout the show of just you know the swinging traffic light in the darkness in the woods they stop there and she just gets off the bike and runs into the fucking woods and he's just like okay cool bye you know well, and that's she's it like, he just drives off she's like screaming I love you James Hurley and she's like screaming that and running into the woods and yeah instead of being like I guess somebody who also cares for her and running after her to make sure she's okay nope just disappear into yeah. the darkness whatever Oops. I do yeah I like her like change in demeanor in those two scenes the, the first one before they get to the intersection she's like got this like very cold hard shell on and yeah. that's when she mocks him he's like Laura and she's like Laura <laughs> he just mocks him and slaps him <laughs> in the face and then when they get out of the intersection to me it feels like she's letting that like inner self out the one that like is really vulnerable and really does want to be loved and wants to be cared for as this innocent person inside and that's she just is such a incredible beautiful actress like the way that she can change that and make you feel so much for like how she's just like dying to be a normal and be with this person because she does care for them in this other self of hers and then she just forces herself to run away and that is really beautiful that she does that and then James is basically like it could just be like a punching bag that she's speaking to at this point <laughs> he just <laughs> no emotion just drives off <laughs> the fact that James doesn't like get off his bike too and run after her and like make sure she's okay it's amazing leads to everything that is about to happen yeah it's kind of his fault now 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, in some ways. So what we then discover is Laura, you know, we joke she just runs into the middle of the fucking woods. She's at a very specific location and she kind of runs through the woods to the other side. And we then see that she is meeting up with her friend Ronette from earlier and Jacques and Leo. They are going to have their like, let's all hang out and party at the cabin in the woods night. So they're there getting picked up kind of off the side of the road. So clearly she set this up with them beforehand. And James, unfortunately, was just her ride out there, weirdly <laughs> enough. So, yeah, this is kind of where we then go to the cabin in the woods that is very prominent in the first part of the show. It even kind of comes back up toward the end because the villain of kind of the latter half of the Twin Peaks series, he kind of takes the cabin as his headquarters, I guess you could call it. I actually had no idea that that was the same cabin. I didn't either until you just mentioned that, but you're right. Like Looking back on it now, it, it is. I can't remember what character goes to the cabin, but... Leo. Yes, it's right after Leo snaps out of his coma, yeah. and he disappears mm-hmm. from Shelly's house, right? Right. He shows back up at the cabin, because that's, that's where he he's used to, to going. be like, his that's spot, right. and that's where he discovers what's-his-fuck. Winston Earl. Winston Earl, and and Winston, Winston Earl, Earl leaves him to die there. Yeah. yeah. We see this cabin, um, and they're all there just to kind of hang out and party and get loaded and fuck. Well, and to make matters even more traumatic, things take a turn for the dark because then, like, Jock and Leo kind of decide they want to take this, like, a step further and, like, have, like, hard sex and, like, yeah. really depraved shit. It's getting shit. rough. Again, Ronette and Laura are both kind of there from a party girl kind of standpoint. Like, they're not there just because they want to enjoy enjoy the company of these two fine gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, w- I would almost disagree with that. I think like in a way Laura is there because she enjoys it on a level. And that's, I think that comes across in like the way that she's related to, especially Jacques during this whole movie. We're not really seeing her grimace. I mean, we're seeing her grimace when she's like dealing with the guy from the like downstairs lounge where she has to like make out with and make like her. But I think there's something like weirdly alluring about Jacques and Leo for her that this is feeding some part of her too like this isn't just that she's there for drugs she's probably primarily there for drugs but I think like to say that they're just there as prostitutes is is almost negating this whole part of Laura's character that like is really like real for her like this is like the second half of her and she is like there because she's feeding something what I was about to say do you think it's more she's there to like scratch that itch and chase the danger than she is for them as actual people um, is she there for what they deliver or is, or is she actually there because of them? I think it's, well, it's both because she is using people in very specific ways. Like we've talked about before, she uses James and Bobby in the way that she gets fed this this image back of herself as yeah. someone pure and good and like someone that they, they want to see her in this way. And she likes that view of herself. But she also likes the view yeah. of herself that she gets with Leo and Jacques, where she embodies like sexuality and like this like seductiveness. And she likes to dress up and she's got like makeup and lipstick on. Like she yeah. is using them for that too. So I think it is both. 
both. Like, it's like these people represent yeah. that for her. I'm just looking at it too mutually exclusive, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I think if, say, you were to ask Laura Palmer, the character herself, on the surface, like the thing she would tell you is that, oh, I'm just using them because they feed my coke habit and they give me that sexual thrill. But the actual truth is probably like what Meryl's saying. It's much more in the middle and both. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes her such a complex, interesting character is that she's existing in these like liminal spaces, right? That she's not yeah. actually black or white. I'm reading it too didactically, probably. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this specifically, Meryl, but both y'all. So when things kind of take a turn for the dark and they start doing more like hardcore sex acts um, that aren't completely consensual, like uh, they tie them up and mm-hmm. when it starts getting rough, yeah. I don't know if it was just her by herself how she would react to this, but I think almost for Ronette's sake, that's when she starts kind of freaking out a little bit because I think Ronette is a lot more reluctant when things kind of start taking that turn than even Laura is. I think Laura is the first person to freak out. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I, I wanted to ask you your opinion on, do you think Laura would welcome this if it was just her in this situation? I don't, and I think that there's something about this in particular that... I can't remember. I might have written this down, but I'm remembering something from like when I was reading into this before that this specific thing of being tied up is actually like very scary to her because she will feel trapped. She will feel like she's vulnerable to Bob at this point. This is too reminiscent of like his sex acts with her. And so this is why she freaks out. Not because maybe she's afraid of sex getting rough, but it's because this particular thing is a trigger and it also renders her a lot more vulnerable. So I think that's why she freaks out. And she's like, please, please, please don't tie me up yeah you can read it like they went way too far and they like they went out of the realm of consent when they started doing that and when she started saying like don't yeah that, i think that that's how i read it and I, I don't think it was for Ronette's sake i think it was for hers because yeah. she was like this is going to render me a lot more useless if i have to fight someone Vulnerable, off yeah yeah and it's too reminiscent of everything she's dealt with yeah which to that point it does yeah so at this point we discover that leland has followed her there somehow and one of the creepier moments you see his head coming to view in one of the windows yeah he's peeking in the window watching yeah he basically waits for one of them to kind of drunk stumble out or he makes a noise. I can't remember which, but basically the two guys kind of wander out. Jacques first. Jacques gets attacked. Leland like beats him over the head with a log. Leo wanders out, sees Jacques, you know, knocked out unconscious outside the cabin and Leo fucking dips. Leo just, you know, grabs his shit and he runs off. For for being such a tough guy, he really like fucking cowards his way out. That's so upsetting. So now we just have Ronette and Laura. Still tied up. Still tied up to Meryl's point. You know, they are now stuck. And Leland basically pulls both of them up. Just walks right in. Drags them through the fucking woods in the darkness. And this is like disturbing shit. In a terrifying scene. Screaming. Yeah. Leland is like grimacing, like pushing both of them through the woods in the darkness. You can see in the first scene that they get in the cabin that they put this rub lipstick on. But like you never see it intact again after that first scene of them putting yeah. it on because it's just smeared all over their mouths. It's very garish. It's almost clown-like looking at this point. Like a yeah. way that your lipstick would almost never get to just from making out. It's like stage yeah. makeup almost. 
closed. And so yeah. they're running yeah. through the woods. Running mascara. Yeah. But the light, the fla- it's like a flashlight. It's like someone's, do you guys remember this? Yeah. The flashlight is in front of them. That's a very stylistic thing. Yeah. It's super stylistic, right? Like there's, it's just a strange way of shooting it, but it works. Like it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you only get glimpses of like their face. Like you don't see their face yeah. actively changing expressions. You just hear them and then catches the it glimpses. Is like a almost like still images. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the mascara is running, the lipstick's all over the place. They almost look a little bit clown-like, but they're clearly in major distress now, screaming as Leland. And Leland's like mm-hmm. full-blown possessed yeah. by Bob now. He's grimacing and yelling, and he just looks maniacal. Yes. So he drags them to the abandoned train car that is in the middle of the woods. And Mike is following at this point, right? Or the Mike-possessed character, yes. Philip Gerard? Yes. I think he goes up and checks the cabin yes. while we're seeing them like running through the woods. Yeah, Philip Gerard, aka Mike, is on Leland's trail trying to mm-hmm. stop him or stop yeah. something dot dot dot. So he is also kind of pacing them through the woods. But yeah, we see Leland brings them to the abandoned train car and this is near where Ronette was discovered in the TV show and obviously they go back to this location in the TV show. Laura at one point finally asks Leland if he is going to kill her. And that is where, like, he fully transforms into Bob. Literally, the actors, like, change, and he is now, like, fully the Bob character. And he tells her that he doesn't want to kill her, but that he specifically wants to, like, possess her. Yeah. And let, he wants to, like, transfer... Let him inside her. His being, consciousness, essence, whatever we want to call it, from Leland into her to then, like, wreak further havoc for the next however long, you know? And he has a he shows her like a mirror as well or takes so a yeah mirror. he puts a mirror down underneath her and then when she yeah. looks and at first when I saw the mirror I was like oh is this some kind of like doppelganger thing like she's seeing her reflection but then it immediately turns to Bob in the mirror like her reflection is Bob Yeah. when I saw it this time after thinking about it I was like that's like a trick right that's like a spirit trick you know like he's trying to show her Could that be, yeah. he's already inside of her or just fuck with her in that way a little bit that's yeah. how I kind of read that part even like trying to jump in to her that way because like there's always those scenes yeah, where Leland true, or true, somebody true. is looking in a mirror and Bob yeah. is looking yeah. back at them. Well think yeah. about how Coop goes out ultimately mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So at this so point, Bob... For a second there, I, th- I thought you said think about how poop comes out, not Coop. <laughs> Sorry, I had to have a little comedic break in the middle of like this really horrifying uh, traumatic scene. <laughs> Back and forth forever. Anyway. <laughs> While everything's happening with Bob and Laura, Ronette, she's going, father, mother, don't look at me, I'm dirty. And then her angel appears and then her like bonds become loosened. And that's why yep. she even gets to the door. Yeah. She sees that Mike is trying to get in and that like she's trying to open yeah, the door. Yeah, and then Leland like knocks her out after that. Yeah. And then Mike finally shows up at this point and this is where he throws Teresa's ring into the train car. Wait, is, so I was confused about that. Is that what happens? I didn't know he threw the ring in there. Yeah, so when Ronette's angel basically gets her unbound, she sees that Mike is in there shouting and trying to get in, so she's going to open the train car fully to let Mike fully in, I guess, to physically stop Bob, yeah. but then uh, Leland sees her trying to let him in and basically knocks her out and kicks her out of the train car, but leaves it only partially open where Mike can't get in. So Mike, in a kind of a desperate attempt, literally throws the ring in to Laura. 
You know, I've never known that. Yeah, and with, the again, the ring, the thing that still kind of bothers me is why earlier why, in the movie yeah, was why are Cooper some saying, like, do not put it on. Yeah, don't take Cooper's the like ring. Saying, don't, don't take the ring. Don't put the ring on. And now the ring is like the one thing that seemingly saves her. The only interpretation I have, at least for that scene, is that might have been Cooper's doppelganger because time is all over the fucking place when it comes to Black Lodge. Maybe that was Bob slash Cooper's doppelganger trying to trick her and say, like, don't take the ring. Like, if they're trying yeah. to give you the ring, that's the only thing I could possibly think of. If I'm being honest, I don't really have an interpretation beyond I think that they intended for this to be the first movie in a trilogy and (laughs) there was writing and stuff that like just kind of was set up for things that didn't happen and they kind of wrote themselves into a weird loop that maybe kind of gets resolved in the return dot 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 i honestly i think it's just a case of we wrote ourselves into a spot that didn't get resolved but yeah ultimately (laughs) the ring is either good or bad we know that We know it either saves you or kills you. By the end of the return, it seems like it's good. Like, because the only people it really fucks up are the bad people. And it basically yeah. ultimately defeats Dobblecoop and Bob. Yeah. And I mean, we can read into it more like when they're saying don't take the ring. What they could mean in that point, like they could be like, hey, don't martyr yourself. Like, you don't have to do this. This is too sure. hard for you. Like, you might need like that might not be what you need to do. And she just chooses this sort of martyrdom with the ring and Instead of allowing herself to be possessed. I remember reading about this after we recorded the first or second episode because it does bother me so much and something that someone brought up I think in a thread about this specific part of Don't Take the Ring Lara uh, from Cooper one of the better interpretations that people said is he thinks that Cooper might be acting on impulse and just kind of trying to remind Lara don't take candy from strangers in a way quote unquote Um, Mm -hmm. because like you can't basically trust the spirits and from his perspective he thinks that maybe Lara would have other options rather than being possessed or killed but in this moment it's like there is no other option sure i think that's a great reading and that fits with what i was thinking because in that whole scene it's like they're trying to protect her and saying like you don't need to do this but she's realizing like this is the choice that she needs to make and it's actually like the stronger choice in this scenario like once she gets to this point there's no other option unless she wants to be possessed yeah and so then she takes it in order to like evade him in some way and i think it's okay that we don't quite understand the mechanics of all that yeah i mean because in the return it also like disrupts shit with bob too so you can just take that the ring is like a ward for dark spirits or something a disruptor is a good word i think quick tangent on that note i like the return i like the turn a lot one small bit is i really wish that by the end the person who took out bob is Nadine. For all of the like build up, build up, build up and weirdness with Nadine over the whole course of the series, mm-hmm. why did they have to introduce the guy with like the fucking magic glove hand? I really wanted to see Nadine bust up in there with the fucking gold shovel. And <laughs> beat, beat the Bob Orb with the, with the shovel. We can just yeah, do an entire podcast on the return. <laughs> on just <laughs> the return, discuss- yeah. Just the return, it's a whole entire podcast, like 200 episodes. That could be a commentary track that <laughs> That we can yeah. do for 18 hours five episodes mm-hmm. at least on episode eight or whatever yeah, really? yeah, i think it was episode eight the static episode <laughs> <laughs> so anyway yeah laura puts the ring on 
And through, you know, whatever Black Lodge, hooky-doo, we don't understand how the spirits and stuff work kind of magic, it prevents Bob from, like, taking her over and possessing her. Leland is like, don't make me do it, right? He starts begging at yeah. that point. Yeah, Leland kind of comes through for a brief second of realization, you know, basically pleading with Bob, like, don't do this, don't do this. And then once again, he's taken over by Bob and stabs Laura to death in the train car. And then we kind of see the rest of the process through the wind down of the movie where Bob Leland takes Laura's body, wraps it in plastic, puts it into the lake and kind of pushes it off downstream. And, you know, eventually we kind of see where her body ends up, which is, you know, obviously the beginning of the show. And after her corpse drifts away, the Bob-possessed Leland goes to the glade in the middle of the forest and he enters into the Red Room for what seems to be kind of like a final judgment scene. But not before he gets his whole face transformed for a moment. (laughs) into my makeup as he gets to the edge of the Black Lodge. The light shines and he's got black lipstick and white face paint on. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's that same corruption that I think I brought up Possessed on the last- kind of look. Yeah, yeah. last part where, because Laura gets that briefly when yes. she's talking to, uh, yes. what's his Wyndham face? Earl has it briefly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's to signify like people who are corrupted by the Black Lodge's influence. The corruption's showing physical features. Yeah. So we see Leland enter the Red Room through kind of the portal that is the glade out in the woods. And in the Red Room is Mike, the Philip Gerard character, and once again, the man from another place. I think Michael Anderson is his name. Yeah. And Leland, he's like floating in the air. And there's a point where like the possessed Leland finally splits and we have actual Leland floating kind of unconscious with Bob standing beside him. And there's kind of this final like, did you deliver the pain and sorrow? Did you get the Garmin Bosia? Like, we want our cut. Yeah. yeah like he, where yeah, is all the they thing? say is yeah. I want my Garmin Bosia. Parentheses pain and sorrow suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good reading of it that they're demanding their cut. I think another reading could just be like out of anger because I think that that's what we saw earlier in the truck with that car scene where it's like you stole this from me or like you need to repay me for like whatever you took from me and it yeah. might not be that they like planned it together but that like all right you you got this again like you need to give it to us but it could be like a cut yeah. of it too that's an interesting reading i didn't think of it because yeah, because i always forget that the arm is mike's arm like it's just mike until and the he armor. puts his hand on his shoulder yeah <laughs> and he's like literally his arm yeah yeah <laughs> which is really good i loved that my reading is we saw this meeting of the spirits of the very beginning of the movie and again like we kind of all seem to agree that like they're neither good or bad they're just unknowable and their motives are unknowable to us right bob is really the only one that's straight up evil yeah they are all agents of chaos my read is definitely just bob went out into the world kind of with everyone's permission to cause pain and suffering to bring back this energy this force of human emotion that they feed on pain and sorrow being like the most fulfilling and the most i don't know hearty for them to consume you know and these other spirits have basically just been intervening to make sure that they get their cut and that bob doesn't just keep it all for himself it sounds like bob's a pain in the ass to deal with for them like he's like the pain in the ass brother that everyone has to deal with because they're related by blood but otherwise they're you know you don't really necessarily want to spend time with them and it seems like 
like a, a lot of them to me are almost like at first we were okay with Bob doing this, but he's a either gone selfish and keeping it to himself or B gone too far or C both. Yeah. When Leland's still floating unconscious, they want their share. Bob puts his hand on Leland's stomach and splashes blood to the ground. You see a cut of the arm eating some creamed corn. Just sucking it all yeah. up. Just yep. all the entire spoon. We didn't need just one shot. We needed a long shot of him sucking up. Yep. Which is disgusting. In close up, yeah. In close up, mm, you only corn. see his mouth and his. I'm mm. pain and suffering. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, as the uh, sheriff's department is discovering Laura's body the next morning, we then see Agent Cooper and Laura in the Black Lodge together. And this is kind of the like idealized Black Lodge version of Laura in full done up hair and makeup and black dress and everything else. This is like the glamorous spirit version of Laura who is now trapped here. I actually noticed too that she had no eye makeup on in the last scene that we had her in. And you can see it when she's talking to James and so she's got really crazy looking eyes. They're very light looking though and they're very like just she has not thought about it. And in this last scene she's got dark mascara, classically like red, dark red lips, curls in her hair. Everything is kind of perfect and placed and classical whereas before we had this sort of young wild clownish look so it's just like the utter opposite of the look that we just had yeah Yeah. and uh as she's sitting there cooper puts his hand on her shoulder you get an image of an angel appear it's her angel it's the angel that disappeared from her painting and now it's back to comfort her yeah and she begins to cry and then laugh and like it ends with her laughing and smiling. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. Well, and that's the other thing when you were talking about this being like a nice show to put on in the background. When I was watching this last scene with the music and her laughter, like you you can think about being in a room with her and just when she smiles, you smile. You know, she's just got this contagious looking smile and laughter and she's so happy she's crying looking at her angel and it's very yeah. moving. But if you were to put different music to this scene, I'd love for you guys to horrifying. watch this again and think about it because the lighting is terrifying. It just like goes from oh red yeah yeah to it's, blue. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's only yeah, the music yep. that makes this super moving and beautiful, instead of like a terror to it's end that this. That effect as well too. Yeah, yeah. with this like it's kind weird. of like really weird like '90s looking pageant angel, which I love that we talked about that earlier because these two angels for a long time I thought that they were the same, and I was confused about it. But like it's very clearly like guardian angels. This angel that we see has like the curls from the photo whereas Ronette's angel has like long straight hair and I think that that's only for us to be able to differentiate and know that that wasn't Laura's angel like Laura's angel that's did not come I didn't her. pick up on that yeah I, I always assumed it was the same angel I thought it was too but the last time I saw it I was I just noticed her hair and it's long and straight in the train car and that made so much more sense like within this plot line no yeah me. you're right I'm looking at pulled up two images of both of them um yeah you're absolutely right and i think that's why you see like the sense of like abandonment in the train car when laura sees that ronette's angel has come because she's just felt like totally left alone like her angel left her in the photo and now she sees ronette's angel came and like loosened her bonds and she's like where's my angel (laughs) this could be really useful for me right now and her angel never comes until like 
It feels like what she's seeing at the end of the movie when she's just laughing and crying is this unburdening, this like relief that this was all for something. Like this was the final moment for me. Like I had to go through this to get here. And there was something important about what I did. And my angel is here now to tell me that like the end is here. Interestingly enough too, later on in the return, angel imagery pops up again because when Andy goes through like that vortex and finds himself in the fireman's place um, and the fire is the giant um, in the original series. The, the fireman shows him a bunch of those images, and one of the images uh, Andy sees is Laura Palmer's face, like from her homecoming photo, the infamous photo that you see throughout the series. And there's two angels surrounding her in the red room in the background. Yeah. And fireman, if we really want to go off on a tangent, maybe he's God or like an agent of the White Lodge or or something. I don't know. But this final scene with Cooper and her seeing her angel and her crying and then laughing kind of goes to the interpretation I wanted to share with you specifically, Meryl, like since part one of our three-part series. (laughs) Finally, we're here. So something you brought up like through all three parts of our series on Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me specifically was the different aspects of Lara. And if you really wanted to take it a step further and like go back to me referencing even persona of the idea of a shadow self and your true self and reality and how what makes up a human being or a, a being itself isn't necessarily one total thing. It's different aspects of uh, the many forming the one, you know, almost even like the, if you want to get really religious for it, like the trinity of like three and one. And my interpretation of this ending, because it is a very weird ending and it's never really addressed in any manner that's like straightforward ever again as to like when this takes place, does this mean that Laura is now just forever trapped in the Black Lodge, but like her angels there with her? Like, what does this mean? And my own interpretation that I kind of picked up on, and there are a couple people on online who share relatively similar ideas is that this scene takes place after Cooper gets trapped in the Black Lodge. If you want to be really specific, you could say it takes place after this original series and before the return. And I think this is the aspect of Lara that went through all that pain and suffering, that went through all that manipulation, the dark parts like the coke habit, everything she did that was dark and quote unquote wrong that she did to protect her innocent side and protect herself. I think that aspect is her quote unquote shadow self that's what's in the black lodge that's what was left there after her death and when she sees the image of her angel the true lara uh the true good part of her and whoever she was as a person her soul quote unquote if you really want to take it that route has basically gone to heaven or the white lodge or whatever you want to call it because then later on in the series when you find out that leland was bob and basically bob kills leland like as he's leaving his body and there's that scene where leland is dying and basically regretting everything he did like killing his daughter and cooper's holding him and he's saying cooper i see her i see her she's she looks beautiful she's all in white she's forgiven me and she's welcoming me into the light what should i do and Cooper tells him, go see Laura in the light. I think that the true Laura Palmer is in heaven or whatever Twin Peaks version there is of that. Yeah. And that all the stuff that like we still see, yeah, all the stuff we still see like in the return and like these aspects of Laura Palmer we see in the Black Lodge are all- Is that shadow self. Is the shadow self that like went through pain and suffering.
offering that. to protect her. Um, and so the fact that she sees her angel is basically a way of her guardian angel telling her like, you basically went through that suffering for a reason. Your true self is at peace now or whatever. That's the way I take it. You know, there's a million of other interpretations, but it's a good read though. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful read. I love that. Plus you have Mike saying he saw the face of God and that's what caused him to repent. Mm. Obviously there is some kind of whether it's associated with the White Lodge with Major Garland or just in general, there's some force of good out there in some way. Mm-hmm. So I just always took it that route. Yep. Well, um, real quick, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this. I watched The Missing Pieces. And so I kind of want to like run through some of these that I feel were maybe kind of important and see what y'all's reading on it as well. Did either of y'all end up watching Missing Pieces I at did. all? I did. I've only seen a little bit of it. So there's less important stuff. Like we see Agent Desmond like actually fist fighting the corrupt sheriff guy. I saw that one. Yeah. Love that part. It's a fucking goofy scene. But like, is it important? Ultimately, no. But you know. No, but it was great. (laughs) Yeah. Just watching him like beat the shit out of this guy who like thinks he's all like tough. Um, Like we mentioned earlier, there is an extended scene of David Bowie as Jeffries leaving the hotel in Brazil and he like gets fucking teleported zapped from there to the FBI headquarters and then he like zaps back. That was my favorite part. I kind of like the way that the movie plays it out instead where like Jeffries is just trapped in this kind of in-between state which the the return definitely picks back up on Mm -hmm. but it was just like a strange like put it this way I will take that scene because it's just more day David Bowie on screen. Right, right, right. Um, with a fucking weird Southern accent trying to speak <laughs> Spanish. So that was like an interesting bit because it's a totally different like read on what ends up happening with him. Yeah, I love Compared that. to like what we get in the final movie. Yeah. There's a very interesting scene with the Palmer family having a fun and happy dinner. Oh, yeah. And they're like discussing the imminent arrival of the Norwegians. So, you know, Leland is like speaking Norwegian very poorly and playing jokes and like it's just an interesting scene of them actually having fun as a family yeah and then you juxtapose that to the scene where he's threatening Laura telling her to wash her hands and asking her about right. her lovers you know I did love that scene because he's so it gives more depth you to see his the character warmness. and you see his yeah. warmth yeah. and you see like the relationship that she must have had with him growing yeah. up which I think does heighten the betrayal and I think that that's why I really totally. love that scene it's like you see how close they are and how much he does love her and how much she loves him, even though he's being goofy and like very dad, you know, just like making them repeat this silly Norwegian term. I love that Laura and Sarah get like this fit of laughter that they just, it ends the scene with them being almost hysterically in laughter because yeah. they're just like enjoying themselves so much. And at first they're both like rolling their eyes, like dad, fine. It's just so cute, like this family scene, which yeah, I did love that. And I think that that did help, like, set the scene for how dark it becomes, too. Yeah, it's a good juxtaposition, just kind of having both of those in there as, like, a what Mm -hmm. things should be and what things are kind of scene. Kind of like I mentioned, there were a lot of people from the original series who were not in this movie, but Mm -hmm. that did shoot stuff for this movie. So, we have a scene where Pete and Josie are at the mill arguing with the bank owner guy over, like, what the actual size of (laughs) 2x4s are. Like, that scene, it was fun to... 
to like see them and it's a weird quirky scene absolutely no need for it to be in the movie yeah, cut it yeah the scene at the double r diner where laura goes to pick up the meals on wheels food and we briefly see norma and shelly that scene's extended big ed and nadine also briefly like show up nadine kind of like turns her nose up at norma and storms out and then big ed just kind of like shrugs and follows her and <laughs> shelly like takes over the meals on wheels delivery that laura bailed on and that seems just a little bit longer about her whining about it laura really noped out of that <laughs> yeah i saw some ghosts and i gotta go yeah <laughs> just i'm gonna run away screaming right now don't don't worry about me or my car <laughs> yeah yeah she just leaves the car yeah there's another scene where laura and donna have like a heart to heart donna fears that she's kind of too lame and uptight to be running around with laura and kind of also discusses whether or not to sleep with mike and she kind of claims that like her relationship with mike and this is mike like teenager mike he shows up kind of in the beginning of the series yeah the red the redhead guy yeah mike and bobby not to be confused with mike and bob <laughs> Not confusing. Yeah, at all. exactly. And this is the mic that ends up with Nadine, like, at the end of season two. But yeah, Donna basically just claims that their relationship is purely about sex and that she doesn't actually like him. So it's a little bit more showing that Donna is, like, way more open to being sexual than kind of where the movie leaves her, where she is definitely played up to be more innocent and naive in the movie, the way that they kind of frame it. But this scene explicitly, like, she just says, nah, I'm just dating him like because the sex is good yeah I, this is one of the few scenes that i think is pretty much replicated in the secret diary where yeah from laura's perspective she goes over to donna's house and she's just basically bitching about donna at this point she's like man i really thought donna and i were on the same she could be on the same page sometime but i've been through literal forest orgies and donna is talking to me about losing her virginity in this like yeah. special evening with her weird boyfriend mike who i know she's not going to stay with it's like this chasm between them that yeah. Laura felt like she could maybe find some common ground. And then when she hears that, she's like, oh, we're so far apart. <laughs> that, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Oh, you sweet, never... sweet, innocent girl. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that was one of the few scenes that I feel like is like pretty much the same in, in both of the diary and the missing or in Firewalk With Me, which isn't even in Firewalk With Me. We also have a scene where Laura is slowly becoming possessed, question mark. I, I wrote that exactly like Laura slowly becoming possessed, parentheses, question mark. Because I don't remember how that one played out, but it was just a very esoteric scene. But the main thing from that was we see Sarah also having a fucking breakdown stating it's happening again. Mansfield, I remember her saying that. I felt like that was when she was... So Sarah goes up to Laura and she's like, hey, where's my blue sweater? You took my blue sweater. And Laura's like look at what you're wearing like a teenager and Sarah looks down and then she freaks out she's like it's happening again and that's like one of the only yeah. things I think in both of Firewalk With Me and Missing Pieces where Sarah actually like verbally recognizes that she's having like lapses of memory basically yeah. now that you're saying that that's what I remember now yeah yeah and it's kind of chilling because you're like this isn't just about sweaters <laughs> Sarah yeah <laughs> this is about your daughter being raped by your husband <laughs> like yeah really but it's like pretty chilling because you you know like the backstory of what she's talking about and she's just clearly like yellow wallpapering it just like not quite yeah. 
knowing what's happening. I mentioned this earlier, but we see more of the like Leland Teresa Banks connection getting fleshed out from how he like initially found her to the scene where he like bails on her after like trying to set up the yeah, fortune where he discovers out. Laura and Teresa figures out like who Leland is that she's Laura's father and she right. tries to blackmail him. That felt all unnecessary because we really got all that context that we needed. To me, I felt like that was filler. A little bit, yeah. It kind of comes up in a circuitous way with Jacques. Right. Kind of like offhanded mentioning it. But if you're not really like putting that two and two together or you don't remember that, oh yeah, in Which you would if you watched it three times, which everybody should. So I don't know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why you need to spell it out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have. So I don't know know what everybody else's excuses. (laughs) We have one scene with Sheriff Truman, Andy, and Hawk. This is all stuff that goes back to the whole Bobby drug subplot. Like earlier in its missing pieces, we see Laura kind of mediating a drug deal for him because Bobby's fucking it up and Laura steps in to like actually make the deal happen. We then have, again, like I said, Sheriff Truman, Andy and Hawk strategizing around like how to intercept the drug mule at the border, which we know the drug mule is this corrupt deputy from the Deer Meadow place that we see earlier in the movie that Bobby Mm, ends up mm -hmm. fucking shooting and killing. Yeah. Laura does, like, the last bit of coke out of her, like, diary stash, and Bobby gives Laura, like, $10,000 to put in her safe deposit box at the bank, which all that kind of comes back up later. I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) Bobby goes to, like, the drop-off point in the woods, and he, like, gets the drugs, and it turns out they're all laxatives, and he, like, freaks the fuck out and cuts the bag of coke open and just, like, throwing it all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, laxatives, fuck, fuck! (laughs) Just screaming, like, throwing this brick of powder, getting it all over himself. Jacoby calls Laura at home and is kind of oh, trying to sweet yeah. talk her a little bit. And she, the, we mentioned this too, but yeah, she's yeah. definitely like not at all happy that he is calling her, that he is calling her at home. Like she basically just tells him like, stop, don't do this anymore. I'm not interested. Quit calling me. Yeah. Can we just wait? I just want to pause right there and just like say of all these men that she has in her orbit, two of them, we can say James and Bobby are the ones that see her like good-ish self or like the part that she sees of herself as good and then like Leah, Jacques, Bob characters see her shadow self and Jacoby's the only one that's like actually interested in seeing both sides of her. Yeah. And in the seasons we see her like sweet talking him through her recordings but in the missing pieces what we really see is her just being like kind of annoyed with him and i think that's super interesting that she actually might not want to be seen as a full person yeah i think that's um kind of a classic like thing like i don't know if i do want you to know all of me like that's kind of scary to me you know that you would see through all these layers and see my full self because i'm not used to it i'm just used to being seen in one of these two ways would dr jacoby something that recent books uh, the Secret History of Twin Peaks and I think like mm-hmm. the final dossier did really well because to me Dr. Jacoby always at least in the main stuff always seemed very much almost like comedic relief mm-hmm. but in the books and in the missing pieces almost like the quote unquote extended universe of Twin Peaks his whole outlook and history is also fascinating because like something that's never explained in the show is why his glasses have different colors like one's blue one's red mm-hmm. and yeah. in the book there's like a whole section of the book explaining like he has this theory that it, it's something to do with like affecting the physical world around you when you have these like different colored shades going in and out of each eye it, it's just really interesting that like between the missing pieces and her secret history or her secret diary and and then these books that uh jacoby is very much expanded upon yeah 
there's a scene where the log lady is like crying outside as she hears Laura being murdered. Like she's close <laughs> enough in the vicinity of the murder that like she hears it and she's just crying because she knew it was yeah. coming. You know, it's just one of those. Yeah, like, and at some point she's like, my log heard something that night. Maybe so did you, <laughs> log lady. Yeah, you could have told us, log lady. Yeah, it's a lot log lady. Maybe it was your ears as well. Now, here's the stuff that I think is kind of most interesting, and this is honestly the stuff that I really wish was left in. I think it would have worked if this stuff had been edited in, like, before the final few scenes, but I feel like it's all pertinent. So, we have a flash forward where we get a title card that says, Some Months Later, and we see the, like, bloodied body of Annie being rushed into the ER... We see Cooper in the Black Lodge, where the man from another place, the arm, tells him that the ring has now passed on to Annie. Annie is actually wearing the same dress that Caroline Earl, Wyndham Earl's dead wife, was supposed to be wearing. Hmm. Yeah. Cooper is also told that he is now stuck in the lodge indefinitely. But yeah, Annie momentarily, like really briefly, wakes from her coma and repeats the same message that she delivers to Laura through her dream. The whole like, Coop's in the Black Lodge, don't take the ring, write this down in your journal, you know, whatever. And then she like goes right back into the coma and the nurse caring for her sees the ring on her finger and like takes it off and puts it on herself and she instantly kind of starts maniacally laughing as after she puts the ring on and then it cuts back to the great northern where we see doppelkoop having just been possessed and busted his head on the the mirror playing possum with sheriff truman and doc hayward because remember they were like banging on the bathroom door cooper cooper where you know what's wrong where are you whatever and they walk in and again doppelkoop is like playing possum on the ground like oh yeah i don't know what happened future uh, mr just, c i slipped and hit my head yeah mr c and something about me doing that was funny yeah and so that's that's kind of it but i mean it, it does a better job of like looping back around to all of that from like the way that the season two ends and honestly I really do think that if they had had those just couple of scenes stitched in toward the end somewhere where it does kind of sort of roll back around in terms of relevancy in connecting this movie to the ending of the series I think people would have probably accepted this movie a little bit more Mm -hmm. as a continuation of the series yeah instead of just viewing it as a like fuck you prequel kind right. of dead end yeah yeah yeah. i hear like that. i feel like if those scenes have been left in it would have been like enough fan service to just like get by yeah yeah and potentially it could have carried on to where he could have made the other movies you know which you know obviously it worked out because now we have the return and the return's pretty fucking amazing yeah, yeah. and ultimately like we have 18 hours of the return where <laughs> it's just how it was supposed to you be you know we still not enough would maybe only have like four hours of movie you know yeah. so it's it paid off in the long run i guess still doesn't yeah. feel like enough and he even recently i think recently just came out and said uh more twin peaks is not in the cards right now <sighs> so yeah yeah they've been kind of back and forth thanks with it quarantine since the return. yeah <laughs> they've been back and forth about it since the return finished there were pretty 
quickly rumors of a season four. Obviously, like, things, even in the return, are still, like, not completely resolved for a few Fuck no. major characters, <laughs> you know? So, there is definitely, like, a few doors still open for them to explore. Speaking of which, something that, kind of a little small detail we missed, in Fire Walk With Me, there's this monkey that you see in the convenience store. Oh, yeah. God. And the monkey's just there, and you assume it's, like, part of one of the spirits or whatever. But, later on in Fire Walk With Me, right after Laura Palmer's murder, right after uh, Leland Bob kills her, and before it shows the next morning when he wraps her up, that one of the most haunting images, all of a sudden you see the image of that monkey's face, and it's like a, a zoom-in close-up of the monkey's face. It's like a close-up fisheye lens using, yeah. like, mm, night Yeah, vision. it's like a night yeah, vision. It's really it's haunting. creepy as fuck, and the monkey speaks the word Judy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's... Okay, so- I, I didn't bring it up because I thought we said we were going to talk about Judy. But- oh, fair, fair, fair. <laughs> but- You can edit all this out. No, no, I'm, I'm, we're going to keep it in, but yeah, like, wh- just more of that, like, what are we looking at? You know, like, like, what the horse is potentially setting up for later, you know? Okay, so we've talked about Judy a couple times in this as being, like, the chaos agent or just present when chaos happens. Tell me I'm wrong, but I think this happens immediately after the creamed corn visual where we're having Michael Anderson suck up the creamed corn. So we see in succession Garmin Boja being taken out of Leland, Michael Anderson sucking it up, the arm sucking it up, and then the monkey speaking the word Judy, which Judy comes, like, right on the tail of this like pain suffering conflict like chaos just like a little bow tie on the end of this nightmare just like this was my doing <laughs> i don't know that's yeah yeah so the two other things i wanted to mention before we wrap up this episode is again going back to that poem that is in the return that one of the woodsmen speaks over the radio wave in 1956 and we assume puts to sleep everyone in this town including a young sarah palmer the poem he speaks is this is the water and this is the well drink full and descend the horse is the white of the eyes and dark within and it's a, a hinted at that in the return that the woodsmen are also not only are they agents of chaos but they are like evil like bob and judy are um they are forces of evil i mean they even commit murder but they specifically bring up horse and white in that last line of the poem sure and something else i forgot about is that when cooper is in that time loop and is finding that way in Odessa, Texas, when he stops at Eat at Judy's, the diner, there is a white horse kitty ride outside of Eat at Judy's as well. And then you oh. see it again at the waitress's mantle piece at her home, again, signifying Judy's presence. And from my interpretation from the return is that the atomic bomb test basically blasted open the doors of the Black Lodge and that I almost treat Judy and the experiment as the same thing and basically almost being like the Satan slash mother of all these dark spirits, specifically Bob, because I think when she regurgitates out all that black smoke and everything, she's regurgitating out all the evil, and specifically Bob comes out of that, and then in the return, doppelganger Cooper, Mr. C, he meets up with Jeffries in the convenience store and specifically asks to meet Judy. Like, I want to meet this Judy, and I almost take it like Bob knows he is somehow connected to this Judy being, but Judy is even a above Bob and like mm-hmm. how unknowable and powerful she is that mm-hmm. I think even the spirits of the Black Lodge are maybe aware of her presence but like they're almost beneath her even and like that you only catch glimpses of her manifestation through the horse through yeah. the monkey it would be That's like the comparing way I like the Greek gods and the fates and furies or something like that like it's yeah. Yeah. these two like classes of beings that are not human 
But yeah, like if we were going to talk about like the the spirits of the the lodges, both the white and black lodge, there is this like distinction between them. But even within the black lodge, we can like in our own like morality, we can say like this one's better, this one's worse. But really, they're sort of just like going by their whims and what's happening, and they have their own aims. That kind of like humans are so far below them that they were just sort of like playthings at this point. Yeah. But the Judy concept and some of those other forces are even beyond those lodges. Like you're saying, it's like this just like yeah. force that they can't even control. And they're maybe drawing some inspiration or power from where maybe they came from, but it's not anything that they can like. And my, my own personal theory, and this is mine, you know, many other fans, including you two might disagree with me. My own personal theory is that Judy is basically the mother of evil. She is the mother to all these spirits, at least Killer Bob. So I think she is like the mother figure. So that's why she's kind of above them, but like almost like a mother who abandoned them, who just kind of like spit them up and then like is just going about watching everything go to shit with all this evil energy she released. To y'all's point too about her being kind of apart from all the other spirits, she's also like in a completely different zone from the rest of them she's like mm-hmm. in that kind of mauve universe i can't remember like what the name of it in fan canon is the endless ocean and like the weird fucking tea kettle room and all that yeah bullshit. she's like a like, teapot <laughs> like yeah she's just a big old teapot at some point i don't know if i brought this up in our part one episode even but and it's even mentioned in one of the books the recent books but the idea of judy is that it dates back all the way to Sumerian mythology from like 3000 BC yeah. that it's a, a the female form of a wandering demon who feasts on human suffering and it's said that if Judy the female form and the male form which is Baal um, which I think is an ancient god of war were ever to marry on earth that they would basically end the world and so sure yeah so there you go like judy is satan (laughs) i think i listened to the audio version of those books which i would not recommend because it's more like reference books but they pronounce it jow day at some point yeah that's like the ancient sumerian sumerian yeah that's like version of it yeah the book makes a point of saying it originally was called jowdy j-o-u-d-y and then over Mm -hmm. time became judy because of philip jeffries and everything else which i think makes it feel more like mythological and real that there wasn't just like this random English name yeah. Judy. Like. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I honestly, you know, and I, I own both of the books, but I kind of like listening to the audiobooks from the simple standpoint that all of the actors voice their segments of the book. Yeah. But to your point, it is a lot of information that does just get thrown at you. And a lot you of it's you don't visual. Like take it at your pace. Well, yeah. a lot of it's visual, and a lot of it, a lot of it is footnotes. So you just get yeah, a lot sure. of like this excess information from the Tammy character, where you're like, she's listing off the numbers of the files that you're reading, and you're like, I don't know where we are anymore. Yeah, and it's nicer to have with some of the typographical elements that they use as fun, like they have letters and stuff. So it. Feels it's kind of like, like House of Leaves. Yeah. Yeah. It's like House, House of, of Leaves, Leaves where like you can't listen to an audiobook of that. You have to like no. sit there and look at it to right. see how the text is physically put together. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the Twin Peaks book is called The Final Dossier. Right. So it's like you're looking through this giant manila folder like with all these yeah. clippings and attachments and everything. Yeah. And the, the secret history is the same way. Yeah. Because yeah, they're really two books and it's almost like a series because the first book is The Secret History, which I think actually came out literally the week 
or two right before the return started or during the yes. return. Yeah. And then the final dossier came out like a month afterwards. Yeah, yeah. A and month chronologically, after. the final dossier happens after the after return. After the return. Yeah. And yeah. the secret history is before. Yes. Tammy Preston yes. R- makes mention of like certain things that aren't adding up like in our timeline, like little mm-hmm. changes to history that are crazy. And she's even referencing like no one really knows if Cooper succeeded or not and what he did. He just kind of disappeared. All these weird changes are now happening and they don't know what to make of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And something that I was hoping for fourth season was that they were kind of setting up Tammy Preston as being like a new Cooper and trying to follow up what happened to Cooper. Like now that's the mystery of like, where did he disappear? What happened when he time traveled? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, um, do we have any last final thoughts on this giant epic? <sighs> we're we're thirty episodes plus into our series, and this is the only multi-parter that we've had so far. And we scratched the surface, honestly. Like, yeah, yeah. we hit the I main. I feel like parts. we still scratch the surface. Yeah, we hit the main parts of Firewalk with me specifically, but there's just so much to the Twin Peaks universe in general. And like yeah, I said, we, when y'all decide to do a Twin Peaks podcast on the return, call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll set up a second podcast and <laughs> look. We'll, if we we'll ever start actually making money off this podcast and we have like a Patreon or something like that, maybe that'll be a Patreon exclusive. We'll just have like yeah. a <laughs> episode by episode like commentary track with the three of us, just like oh fucking God. getting drunk and bullshitting our Man, way through it. You know what is like one of my favorite parts, and it happens twice. First, when the very first appearance in episode one of Mister C, and then God, later I love on, that scene just him driving, and yeah. then that fucking weird like he's gonna be yeah. work you it's a like slow down version song. of yeah. American Woman by uh, yeah. I forget the name of the artist and that slow down version is like one of my favorite parts that happens twice because it happens with Mr. C's appearance and then when Diane Tolpa is gonna uh, try and go murder them <laughs> yeah and I fucking love like I'm so happy that like they brought uh, Laura Dern yes. in I know. as Diane like that was fucking genius Laura oh, Dern is a one of the best people ever (laughs) i mean her and kate blanchett are like two of the actresses that just are untouchable to me and i fucking hate that like of all the good work that she's put in she finally won a fucking oscar for marriage story and her performance in that was like completely forgettable yeah yeah it's like you deserve this anyway so we'll give it to you for this one yeah it was kind of like that whatever but i mean at least she got one finally yeah (laughs) kind of like what happened to dicaprio with uh what did leo the revenant the revenant yeah whatever and renee zellweger with whatever movie she won this year (laughs) (laughs) oh judy speaking of judy oh my god you're right it was judy (laughs) should we watch that next is that a horror movie (laughs) yeah uh that's yeah there we go like that's a good way to cap this off one final like weird synchronicity in our (laughs) universe right there so cool cool well uh this has been the final part of our twin peaks fire walk with me discussion if anybody like has managed to you know sit through us for the whole thing you are awesome you're probably as big a fan as we are (laughs) judging by our download count versus other episodes this is a really a niche series (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, whatever. When we started this, I explicitly even said, like, this is probably going to be, like, you know, a one for us kind of thing. So um, we wanted to cover this. We've been talking about doing it from the beginning. So this is definitely a gimme for us. But either way, if you've managed to get through it, chances are you're probably as big a fan as we are. So we appreciate you sticking with us. Um, So, yeah, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where every episode your favorite monster movie boy, Aaron, and the coward Derek make their way through another spoopy title. Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. Future episodes at whatever podcatcher you happen to use. We're on all the major ones at this point. Rate and review us in wherever you can. That definitely helps, you know, gain more exposure. Tell your friends about it, etc. We definitely appreciate all the support we've had so far from everyone. Thanks to our special guest, Meryl, for joining us through this entire giant long process. Thank you for being on. Guys, this was so fun. Love doing this. Sad it's over. Can't wait for the return podcast. Patreon exclusive. <laughs> I can be on that too. <laughs> yeah, it's been great having you on. This is definitely something we've talked about like from the beginning of this whole thing. So it's nice that like we finally are, you know, making this happen. So thank you again. Definitely another thanks to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, for the music at the beginning and the ends of all of our episodes. You can check out more of his stuff at Bandcamp under Party Gator or several of his other like associated groups that are all linked from there once again please throw him some support if you can get some good music times is tough for everybody right now so you know i know he would appreciate the you know help there but yeah that is it for this episode do we have any final thoughts doppelgangers (laughs) perfect that's perfect And I'll see Sigamore Dream